Hey there, and welcome to season two of Navigating the Pandemic, the show that explores COVID-19 and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm your host, Kat Morgan, and a current Master of Public Health candidate at Columbia University. As a reminder, this season is focused on the social determinants of health, health inequities, and COVID-19. In the last episode, we discussed what it takes to support health equity and access to care at the community level during a pandemic. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. April Moreno on the show. She holds a doctorate in health promotion sciences and information systems technology and is a seasoned public health professional and fellow podcaster. So before we dive into the interview, April, would you mind sharing a little bit more about your educational background, your career, and any current projects that you're working on, um, maybe especially about your, your many podcasts that you host? I would love for the audience to hear about those. Sure. Thanks, Kat. Thanks so much for inviting me to your podcast today. Um, I'm Dr. April Moreno, and I'm here in Southern California. Uh, Like you mentioned, my doctorate is in health promotion sciences and information systems and technology. Uh, A lot of that had to do with my interest in GIS in the the past. Uh, I like um, just studying uh, marginalized communities, inviting them into research, community-based participatory research. And a lot of what you mentioned, the social determinants of health are really important to me. How can we transform those social determinants, especially in the context right now of the pandemic? So a lot of the work that I've done over the past couple of years has definitely been inspired and influenced by the pandemic. I think most recently is the Public Health Podcast and Media Network, which I'm so excited about. And Kat, I'm so glad you're part of our community as well. And so that actually was influenced by the pandemic as well because of the lack of information, the misinformation, the disinformation, and missing information that's out there with the pandemic. Uh, I actually started a podcast in 2020 similar to yours. It's called COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. And now that's part of the, uh, it's one of the official podcasts of the network. We have four official podcasts in the Public Health Podcast and Media Network. Uh, One is COVID-19 PPC. Another one is called the Public Health Report, which is a weekly news podcast about public health stories in research, um, anything new in the field. Uh, Another podcast we do is called Honoring Women of Color in Public Health. And then a fourth one we do is called the Public Health Networker. And that's the one that um, is kind of our um, signature podcast for the network, where I interview people in the field of public health, professionals, leaders, um, people who are out there so we can network and get to know who is, you know, who's there in public health, who's uh, running a lot of these programs and things. So uh, that's us here. And um, other than that, I have a master's in public administration and uh, was dedicated to a lot of health policy, the implementation of the Affordable Care Act back in 2011 for Los Angeles County. And then prior to that, I have a bachelor's and a master's in cultural anthropology. So it's been a long and interesting and really fun journey. It's actually so exciting. I did not know that you had a background in anthropology, but hearing about your interest in the social determinants of health and working with so many different groups, it it makes perfect sense. I have a BA in anthropology, so... um, Birds of a feather. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you'd be really amazed and maybe not surprised to see that there are a lot of cultural anthropology majors who go into public health because there's a lot that we can do. We know how to interact with diverse cultures, identities. We know a lot about the theories of diversity, representation, and so on. And we're able to work with diverse communities to do something that's very proactive and actionable to serve uh, the public good. 
think qualitative and mixed method research, um, but really ethnography that anthropologists specialize in has such an important role in public health. Do parts of that, um, that qualitative work through this podcast. So treat to have you on the show today that you're spearheading to make the world a more healthy and equitable place. And I'm so excited to be part of the Public Health Podcast Network and to continue the fight against disinformation. I think difference in the world. Today, we are talking about COVID protections. And now that it's becoming, honestly, more of a personal risk assessment, and that was your phrasing, world, I was wondering if you would statement and talk about, you know, what do we mean by personal risk assessment and COVID protections? Yeah, so it really it runs counter to what public health is designed to do. But then what public health is designed to do is really a complex discussion in itself. But um, yeah, when we think about what's going on with the pandemic, we are here approaching our third year with this. And we, it seems like we haven't really learned much of anything. We have made some great leaps in terms of vaccine development and things. And um, I, I'm still not sure that there's enough communication on what vaccines can do out there. I'm not sure that people understand the limitations of still being vaccinated in a COVID environment. And um, there's, like you said, there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and even missing information out there that um, this personal risk assessment is a challenge because people aren't given the tools to be able to adequately personally assess the safety of what's going on. Unfortunately, a lot of our public health leadership has um, really moved away from sharing the community transmission data of what's going on in our communities. Uh, there's been more of that focus on hospital, hospitalization data, which is very much um, after the fact. It's retrospective in a way. It's not proactive. And so um, there's a lot there that needs to be changed. And um, that's another reason why the Public Health Podcast and Media Network exists. Personal risk assessment is um, it's very faulty. Uh, it's it's something that many people are not able to do. When we think about personal risk assessment, obviously, the likelihood of becoming infected with COVID-19 might vary based on so many different factors. Um, for example, vaccination status, any chronic health conditions, age, community income. I mean, there's so many different factors that can determine your risk of contracting COVID and experiencing symptoms. And so I was wondering if you would high-risk individuals left behind by public health and government institutions because as people who are privileged enough to be in good health and to normal, those people don't necessarily have to worry about COVID exposure in the same way that. So are these people being left behind since they don't necessarily have the same ability to return to their pre-pandemic activities? At the beginning, people were getting infected, people were dying and people were getting sick. We saw so much happening in New York on the news. 
uh, and they called it the great equalizer. But then over time, they started to realize that disproportionately certain communities were dying at higher rates or receiving less treatment. And so then they started calling it the great exacerbator. More um, to add to that, uh, we did see a huge loss of life in elderly communities, senior centers, things like that. Um, we see a lot of concern in our autoimmune community because we're on disease-modifying medications that limit our immune system. So we're immunocompromised. People who have um, you know, organ transplants, people who have had cancer medications and so on, they are immunocompromised in many cases. And so they are at risk of greater illness, even with vaccines. So that is definitely um, an issue. We saw that um, there was a time at back in 2020 when we were seeing that people who were diagnosed with COVID um, and they were people of color, they were not given access to treatment. Um, that it still may be the case. I haven't looked into the details of that recently. However, what we're finding is that regardless of SES, socioeconomic status, regardless of um, you know um, places of spaces of privilege, things like that, People may appear to have mild symptoms, but then long COVID continues to be a huge and growing issue over time. So somebody who may have had very mild symptoms and recovered relatively quickly may believe that they are all in the clear. However, what we're finding is that a couple months later down the line, we've, we're seeing mysterious um, cases of stroke, uh, organ failure, brain fog, and other conditions even among our most privileged and those who we would have considered very healthy. We've seen people who were young, who had no pre-existing conditions, suddenly die in their sleep. We've seen some very unusual things. And then with children with MISC, uh, multi-system inflammatory um, conditions, um, we're seeing children dying of COVID as well. And so uh, all of that to say that COVID has um, the capability to stay in the the organ system in our in our bodies for a long amount of time, similar to Epstein-Barr. Um, we're seeing these long-term results of COVID and we don't know the full answer and the full range of what that damage is going to be. So it, we're still not in the clear, not at all, regardless of who you are, regardless of your health, your prior health, or even your access to care. There is so much nuance to that question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think for like the the average person, it's really difficult to understand and to break down who is being impacted by COVID. What are the differences between communities? What I mean, I, I know some people who don't under like they don't know what long COVID is. And I mean, to be fair, nobody like scientists don't know. We're still figuring this out as we go. And I think that's one of the hardest parts of COVID-19 research and communications and even translational work to the larger community, you know, it's like, how can we be transparent and as up to date as possible when we're constantly finding out new things? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think kind of like along that strain of thought, my next question that builds on that a little bit is I was really curious about the mental health risks of isolation and depression, mm -hmm. and particularly when we think about the people who are at high risk, do you think that there is a public health crisis um, or a mental health crisis among mm -hmm. the at-risk populations? Because I know we talk about mental health at large, especially during quarantine. You know, it was really, really, really horrible for people all over the globe. Mm 
And now as we're transitioning into a new normal and, you know, people are slowly but surely resuming daily activities, there are pockets of the population that can't do that still. And so I was hoping that you would be able to touch on on mental health risks and in, in those groups of people. As it relates to the pandemic, um, we've seen with you know, social distancing and, um, you know, temporary times when we were uh, encouraged to stay home um, way at the beginning, like in March of 2020, for about a month or so, we were all encouraged to stay home except for essential um, trips out there for food and so on. But um, isolation is definitely an important part. And I think that's a reason why a lot of people have uh, gone back out to socialize and do things again. And there is a safe way to do that. And there's a not safe way to do it. And I don't think enough information is uh, out there in terms of what is safe and what is not safe. However, uh, with the immunocompromised community, and, you know, I think that whether I had a public health degree or not, um, it I wouldn't have had this perspective. It's because I became immunocompromised, it became autoimmune and immunocompromised that I started to see this from a more serious perspective. And so um, there are people in our community in the autoimmune space who do still feel very isolated. They are unable to go out and do things. And our own families and relatives and friends, they feel like, why even bother inviting people? Because they're going to say no anyway. But we still want to get invited. We still want to know that we're thought of, uh, even if we don't always feel safe going to places. So, yeah, there's definitely that isolation and depression, which I think is a, a greater issue in itself. Like with the elderly population, there's already that that level of isolation, but then even more so now when people aren't able to even go and visit in some cases, you know, we know someone in our immunocompromised or autoimmune community who is currently in the hospital, we can't visit them at all. And so there is a lot of isolation right now. And imagine, you know, being in the hospital with illness with COVID or something else and not even being able to see anybody at all. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of depression and isolate isolation related to that. Um, and so mental health is a, a great issue uh, among our communities. But at the same time, what we're seeing is people not having a clear understanding of what is safe and what is not safe to do. So some people just said, forget it all. And I'm just going to start living my life again. And it's just, um, it's difficult because we're seeing not surprisingly, we're seeing a lot of cases of people with COVID, even in our autoimmune community who've had COVID, and we're looking at studies to understand um, what's going on if if they experience long COVID, uh, what is that going to look like for our immunocompromised and autoimmune people uh, in our community. So there's a lot there, um, but at the same time, people are a lot of people have just kind of said, forget it. I'm just going to go and do what I want to do. Yeah. Um, but then we are seeing that resulting organ failure. We're seeing that resulting diagnosis of COVID. And uh, we are currently investigating what long COVID is going to look like with our community. But uh -huh. at the same time, like you said earlier, there's so much conflicting information. And I think throughout the pandemic, People have lost a lot of trust in different public health institutions. There's a lot of misinformation being spread. And, you know, I think the further we get away from a perceived immediate crisis, you know, the more people feel this false sense of security. Yeah. So and it's really better to err on the side of caution. And um, whether you feel like you're young, you're healthy, you're invincible, 
Um, we're seeing too many cases where people with COVID, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are or how old you are or whether you were healthy prior or not. And um, it's always just safer to be on the side of caution. Wear the mask, wear the mask for others. Definitely. Um, whether you're indoors or outdoors, if you're around a lot of people and you potentially feel their breath on you <laughs> and you're that close to people, wear the mask. It's just safer that way. I completely agree. So I, for my last question, you touched on this earlier when you spoke about, you know, we <laughs> we first called COVID the great equalizer and then the exacerbator. And there's really so much nuance but beyond some of the mental health risks, can we talk about how some of the larger social determinants of health play into a personal risk assessment? Especially when we think about potentially somebody lives in a community where mm -hmm. there's not as much space or you have multiple family members living um, under the same roof. You don't have the option to isolate. You don't have the financial ability to isolate because you have to go into work a lot of groups at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, it is the exacerbator. And they can't necessarily afford to make the same protective decisions as others. And I was curious if you would be able to share any thoughts you have on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really important question. So um, at the moment, a lot of the local drugstores have N95s available for free. So what you do is you just go to the counter and ask them if they have any, and sometimes they'll give you a few. And those are free. Uh, I highly recommend people just to stock up on those N95s whenever they go to, to a local drugstore. And um, another important thing is to have windows open, to have um, you know air filters, um, we got ours from Costco for about $35. We got it about two years ago and it's still running without a uh, need for replacement cartridges. You just vacuum it and clean the filter out. So there are certain things out there that are not too expensive, not too costly and um, can help to clear the air. Just make sure those windows are open. And um, whenever you use the restroom to just make sure you spray it um, before, if you were to go into a room without um, a mask, even in your own home, make sure you spray it. If it's something where um, there's central air, I highly recommend wearing a mask as often as possible and having some air circulation available in every room you go into, no matter what. And then making sure your hands are washed, making sure that you are not sharing um, your air with other people if they are exposed, if they've been outdoors and interacting with people without a mask you are more likely at risk of getting COVID through a family member, whether or not they even show up with symptoms. So uh, in those situations where people are living together, for the sake of the elderly that you have in your home, or for the sake of those who may have more risk of illness, do wear a mask indoors if possible. And make sure, if you can't, make sure that there's a lot of air coming through, airflow coming through. And I really hope that we see a lot more growth of the Corsi Rosenthal boxes. For a relatively inexpensive amount of money, you can get some really good ventilation and filtration through your house. So that's highly recommended. And if possible, um, there might be ways through the city or local public health agency. I sure hope so, that some of that might be available to people, especially those living in um, close spaces with family members or others with shared air. So that is the recommendation. Air quality is a lot of what's going on to protect yourself. 
Those are really, really good recommendations. I will be sure to write them out in a Google Doc. And I will link that document in the comments for listeners to access in case you want to cross-reference that later. I had actually never heard of a Corsi Rosenthal box, but oh. it is, yeah, it is surprising. Um, but that's great to know if that you can have a homemade air cleaning system. Um, so thank you. Yes. So before we close out the interview, I was wondering if there was anything that, that we didn't cover or we didn't have a chance to speak about that you would like to touch on, anything that you would like to share with listeners. Thank you. I would definitely mention the fact that it's it's sad that we are on our own at this point. We are looking at our own individual risk assessment. Everyone is at risk of getting COVID. Just like in the past, everyone was at risk of getting COVID-1 or SARS-1, actual SARS, <laughs> um, several years ago. Everyone's at risk of getting infected, and we never know what that severity of infection may be. We don't know what that concentration disease you may have received or anything like that. And so everyone really should be careful. And unfortunately, we don't have that information. My goal is with the Public Health Podcast Network and with you know podcasts like ours on COVID that we do get that information out there. We share stories around the world of what's been going on and how people, I mean, my favorite, one of my favorite episodes is when we interview someone from New Zealand and we actually talk about how they actually got down to COVID zero for a little while, a couple months uh, back in 2020. And it wasn't very complicated. It was as simple as like we mentioned, um, well, they shut down the border for a little while, but then also they masked, they isolated, and they made sure not to spread or share air with people. And they actually brought COVID cases down to zero for a couple of months. So that was the most amazing thing. And they were a great example, um, but I think they still, they had to resume with the borders and things. Um, at this point in in public health and in this in the pandemic, it's really sad that we're still seeing this huge number of, we're seeing thousands of people dying each day. I mean, thousands of people dying each week in the United States alone. We are up there worldwide. We're like one of the champion, you know, champions in a bad way. Um, in terms of people dying from COVID. And it's really sad. Um, we're not finding that guidance from higher levels of national public health agencies or even some of our local as well. It's really disappointing. Um, so what I did was recently um, start the, the People's Public Health Conference. And that's peoplespublichealth.org. It is a conference where we're going to be addressing a lot of the work that we have to do at the community level, that public health as agencies and departments, they were they no longer, um, you know, kind of where it's like the end of the line for what they do for communities and where communities have to pick up the slack. That's what this conference is about. So if you're interested in learning more about public health as a actual an actual community um, based practice, a place where we actually do real on the ground work for social good. Uh, I, I invite you to uh, join us at the People's Public Health Conference, and it's the peoplespublichealth.org, and it's going to take place immediately before APHA, the American Public Health Association's conference. Um, we're going to be on from November 3rd to the 5th, and um, you know we'll talk about COVID. We're definitely, in, we've invited quite a few people to talk about COVID, but also other, other issues as well that um, impact our marginalized communities things that the community has to do, like, you know, whether it's individual assessment, but also things that we can do to make our communities safer. 
Thank you so much for spearheading that. I will definitely be at the People's Public Health Conference. I will also link the website in the show description for listeners to access. So I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Moreno, for coming on the show and for sharing all of this incredible information. It has been such a pleasure to be able to speak with you and to be a member of the Public Health Podcasters Network. So listeners, I highly encourage that you check out everything that I link in the description. And thank you again. Thank you, Kat.